Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm chapter 24. It says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell, dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Selah. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I invite you to open your Bible to Psalm chapter 24 this morning. Psalm 24. If you have been here the past couple weeks, uh, you will know that we are uh, finishing a, a short series on uh, in, in the book of Psalms. We Spent the past two weeks talking about Psalm 22 and 23, and uh, this could be called the uh, or so-called uh, Jesus trilogy of Psalm 22, 23, and 24. So two weeks ago, Pastor Chris uh, preached from chapter 22, and we saw how the good shepherd dies for his sheep. And you might remember chapter 22 and how many uh, references. Uh, in the book of, uh, or in the chapter of uh, chapter 22, are, are quoted or requoted and used in the New Testament um, in the Gospels, referring to Jesus himself. John chapter 10, uh, verse 11 says, I am, this is Jesus writing, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in chapter 22, we saw that. Uh, Pastor Chris showed us. Uh, from the text, how Christ was the true and better David. Uh, as David writes about being abandoned, about being despised and condemned, we realize that, that Jesus was all of those things. Uh, only uh, he was all of those things in order that we might not be abandoned, despised, or condemned by God. So when we think about what Jesus has done for us, we recognize that, that he died the death that we deserve. That's what the good shepherd did. He laid down his life for us. This shepherd became the lamb of God in order to take away the sin of the world. That's what the good shepherd did. In, cha in chapter 23, that's just last week, uh, we had a, a guest preacher here uh, with us uh, last week, Peter Hill, a former uh, student of our youth group and former intern and uh, friend of the church, obviously, family uh, here. And he, he, he showed, from us, showed for us from chapter 23 how the, the great shepherd lives for his sheep. In chapter 22, he lays his life down. In chapter 23, he lives for his sheep. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 says this, 
Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of his, the eternal covenant, he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, according, uh, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory forever and ever. Amen. Last week, uh, we saw how this, this great shepherd is what Psalm 23 is referring to. Uh, we find that this great shepherd lives for us. In, in this chapter, we find that he is with us. That, that great uh, verse there that says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of, of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then those final verses tell us of the hope that we have through this great shepherd of the life to come. Today, this morning, we're going to look at chapter 24, which was already read for us. And here we'll see that the chief shepherd is coming for his sheep. Chapter 22, he lays down his life. Chapter 23, he lives and cares for his sheep. And now in chapter 24, we see him coming for his sheep. Chapter 24, like the previous two chapters, is written by King David, all written by the same guy. And uh, through, it is through thought that in this, this, this psalm would have been sung as the Ark of the Covenant was being brought into Jerusalem at Passover. That's what it's thought that this psalm either was written for or would have been used for. But as we will see, there is more to this psalm than simply uh, the, the historical use of the psalm, or even the, the, the reason for the initial writing. There, there's more here. Uh, many of the psalms, and there's 150 of them, right? Many of them uh, could be called messianic psalms. You've heard that before. And when we say messianic psalms, we mean that psalms that are applied to or are ultimately talking about Jesus, are ultimately talking about the Messiah. Now, not every psalm is a messianic psalm. Not every verse in the Bible is a messianic verse. But there is a lot in the Old Testament of which points to Jesus. Jesus actually said that of himself. Uh, that on the road to Emmaus, he said to his disciples, I'm going to show you all the things in the Old Testament concerning myself. What are the things pointing uh, to him? Well, there are psalms that are called messianic. And sometimes we'll, we'll read a psalm and it'll be referring to a king for instance. And you might say, okay, who's the king? Uh, is it King David? Is it a descendant of King David? Or is it ultimately Jesus? Well, we have to pay attention. We have to think. We have to read. We have to understand context and point of the psalm to, to discern what that is. And some of them aren't, aren't so easy to decide. Some people disagree with what's messianic and what's not messianic. But this psalm is not one that we disagree on. <laughs> This psalm is, is clearly a messianic psalm. This psalm is clearly uh, pointing us ultimately to Jesus himself. This psalm is, uh, can be divided up into three main sections. You can kind of probably see it in your, in your Bible. Uh, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 through 6, and then verses 7 through 10. That breaks up really easy. You don't have to uh, have a... A Bible degree to see the breakdown. Some of your Bibles do that for you. Uh, but one, one commentator puts some headings on these that, that might be helpful for us. Then verses 1 and 2, we find out that the earth is God's. In verses 3 and 4, who, who, can, who can approach God? And then verses 7 through, uh, 3 through 6, that is. And then 7 through 10, God is coming. So first, verses 2 
1 and 2. Let me read them again. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness uh, thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. He has founded it upon the sea and established it upon the rivers. Um, what, what, what do we conclude from that? Well, that, that seems pretty obvious, and it is. All that is, is God's. That seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? All, all that is, is God. The, the earth, all that fills the earth, the, the world, and, and all that is in it, is his. He, he owns everything. We actually find that the Apostle Paul quotes this verse in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he is making the case that, that we should enjoy God's creation, specifically in relationship to food, of what you can eat and what you can't eat. And he says this, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For, the, for quote, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What is he saying? He's saying this is all God's, and God has given it to us to enjoy. We are to steward it well, absolutely. We should not abuse the earth, the world that God has given to us, but we can use it. We can use it responsibly, and we ought to. Abraham Kuyper has quite famously said anymore, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of the human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all his. Psalm 24, David is saying, that's true. That that is absolutely the case. Everything that we see, all that is, is God's. It is all his. Now, this might, if you know your Bible, might call to mind some other things in the Bible about God uh, owning everything or God creating everything. Places like the first two chapters of Genesis, for instance, right? The account of, of God as creator, as creator of everyone and everything. That's not a small thing. Um, think about that. Think about someone who could say something and it happened. What kind of person is that? What kind of person is it that could say something and it happen? It would be a king. That's who it would be. When you would read this, when the original readers would be reading a, a, a passage like Genesis, that's what they would have, would have thought. Who, who, could, who could snap their fingers if something happened? Who could just by their words make something happen? Well, a king could do that. And that's what we see here as well. He is king, and he's king of all. He's not just king over, over the Jewish people, over the Israelites. He's king over all. And what's the point of that? Why do we even bring that up? Uh, for the Jews, there was and continued to be this, this sense of exclusivity uh, of God being their God, which he was their God, uh, but he wasn't only their God. He is God of all. We actually see this in, we've been going through the book of Acts, if you've and coming to our church for a while. In Acts chapter 1, um, the, when, he, uh, when Jesus is resurrected and the disciples see him, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're, they're very insular, very self-focused, like this is, this, is, this is about us. And Jesus' response is not to tell them about the time. It's not to um, say, yeah, we're, we're going to get to that. No, he says, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that your father is fixed 
by his own authority. And then he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What's he saying? He's saying that the gospel isn't just for the Jews. God isn't just a God for, for Jerusalem. That God isn't just over this region. That God is God over all. That God owns everything. That he is king of it all from Jerusalem and beyond, the world and all who dwell therein. It's an important distinction that we ought to make. That probably sounds right to most of you. You probably don't feel like you need to amen that because that sounds like that's, that's commonplace in a, in a church setting. But, but you need to know that that is not an assumed belief, that, that God created all things, that all that is, is his. That is not an assumed belief. So, so don't assume that, that everyone thinks as though that is true. And yet, when we open our Bible, that is what God says. And so we must, we must deal with that. Here it is. And so if it's true, if it's true that he owns it all, if it's true that he is king, which are things that you've heard a hundred times, the question then for us is if it's true, what does that mean? We can read that and say, yes, he owns everything. But what does that mean to you? What, what's the implication to you? I'm not saying, how do you interpret that? We, we know what that means. I'm saying in your life, he is king. What does that look like in your life? I'll tell you, the, the, the first place to start is it has, has something to say to us about authority. It has something to say to us that there is someone to whom you and I are all accountable to. Now, some of us don't like accountability, right? Let's be honest. Right? We kind of want to do what we want to do, and nobody tells me no, right? So, some of us want to live our life that way. Some of us do live our life that way. Some of us kind of resist anybody who would kind of get in our way. We'll uh, push them over. We'll... we'll try to work around them, whatever it takes for me to get what I want, right? This, this is a common uh, problem uh, in the human condition. Yet when we say that the God is God over all, that he, that he owns all things, this has absolute implication to my life and my choices of what I think I can do, what I get to do, what I think should be my right. And we live in a world that tells you, you have rights to do whatever you want to do. It, it, it sounded like a joke probably 10 or 15 years ago, but, it, but it's actually true. If it feels good, do it is actually a motto. That is actually a way people do live their life. That's actually a way that, that some of us live our lives. And let's not act like it's not here. Let's not like it acts like it's just the people out there that live like that, not us. No, we would never do that. We would never just do what feels good. No, no, no. Yes, we do. We absolutely do that. In our, in our depravity, in our, in our sinfulness, in our rebellion, we do. So how would your life be different if you lived as though God was king? That he actually owned it all. That you actually were accountable to him. Would anything be different? I suspect it, it would. Uh, David begins this psalm with uh, an acknowledgement of who God is. Then he moves to the next uh, sentences here in these next two s sections. And he talks about the, the people 
coming to the city of God, and then God coming to the people. First, uh, we look at verse 3. It says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? So God is God over all. Um, so who can stand before God? Who, who's going to ascend to that hill? Who's going to come up to God? Remember, they're, they're coming into the city of God, the, the Jerusalem, the, the place where the temple would be. And, and so who, who could actually go before God? Who could actually do that? Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift, his, lift up his soul uh, to what is false or swear deceitfully, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, the God of Jacob, Selah. So verses 1 and 2, God owns everything. God is king. So who can come before him? Who can ascend the hill? Who can actually approach God? Why would we even say this? The reason is because God is holy. Right? And holiness means a complete setting apart from sin. So God is completely separate from sin. That's what it means. So for, for God to be holy uh, means that, that he cannot be in the presence of sin. Okay, if you're, if you're tracking with this, then, then the question of who can ascend the hill, who can stand in the holy place, is a legitimate question. H- how could we? How could we ever stand before the holy God? How could anyone ever stand before the holy God? Who could ever be in his presence? In, Genesis, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses asks to see God. Remember this? He says, I, I want to see your glory. Would you show me your glory? And God says, I will not show you my glory. If, if anyone is to see my face, they would die. You, you can't. You can't. Now, we don't have a category for that. Let's be honest. You do not have a category. I do not have a category for what that even means. But, but because of who he is, uh, the New Testament says in um, 1 Timothy chapter 6, that God dwells in unapproachable light. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that he is a consuming fire. Get this picture. Get this picture of an unapproachable God by anyone who's unholy. So the question is valid. How could we ever? Who could ever ascend the hill? Who can stand? The answer follows in the next verses. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift his, up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Some further reading, you could read Psalm chapter 15 that says some very similar things. But here in verse 4, the first line is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. When he says clean hands, he means those, those who um, have outward actions of, of holy deeds or, or righteous conduct. And when he says a pure heart, this is referring to the inward holiness, right? So we have the both. We have the outward deeds and we have the inward character, the godly character. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Line, the second line is those who um, do not lift up their soul to what is false and swear deceitfully. We see two things here. Those who do not lift up their soul to what is false or don't worship idols. Those who only worship God. That, those who have a right relationship with God. And those who have a right relationship with others who do not swear deceitfully. That they're honest. There's no deceit in their life. Now at this point, 
if you're honest, uh, you might be thinking, so uh, pretty much no one can ascend the hill, right? <laughs> you have clean hands? You have a pure heart? Have you ever sworn deceitfully? Have you ever worshipped something other than God? Yeah. Yeah, you have. So who can ascend that hill? Let's keep going. Verse 5 tells us that he will, this one of verse 4, will receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. Uh, One commentator named James Montgomery Boyce says that this is an Old Testament expression of justification by faith, what he's saying here about this salvation. So this, we, we know this, that our righteousness, what you call righteousness, what I call righteousness as a human, uh, Isaiah says is filthy rags, right? Apart from Christ, what we think is good is still tainted. It's, it's still not good enough, right? And so if holiness is required to approach God and we are not holy, uh, we are not righteous, then we need the righteousness of another in order for us to approach God. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6 says that the Lord is our righteousness. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that says, For our sakes he made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Martin Luther calls the great exchange, where Jesus takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. An unbelievable, unfair transaction. And yet that is what we see happen in salvation. It is only by standing in the righteousness of Christ that we could ascend the hill. It's the only way that we could be accepted before God. Let me just read this from this. uh, Another theologian says this. The holy life of a true believer is not the cause of his justification before God. Now, there's a way of reading these verses and concluding that if I have clean hands and a pure heart, if I worship God alone, if I, don't, um, if I have no deceit, then I'll be saved. Right? That is not what the passage is teaching. But if you read those in that order, you might come to that conclusion. This, this theologian is, is trying to help us saying this. The holy life of the true believer is not the cause of justification before God. Which means you don't work your way up to salvation. You don't be good enough to be saved. But he shall receive justification or salvation and eternal life as a free gift from God. By virtue of the covenant of grace, because God is a God of grace. Therefore, it is said here that he shall receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. So he's receiving the righteousness from the God of his salvation, not because he is pure, not because he's done something to be pure, but because God is a God of grace. So actually, if we were to see these these two verses in an inverse order, we might get a, 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 a more clear picture of what the Bible is showing to us about justification that precedes sanctification, or said differently, how salvation comes before right living. We don't live up to salvation. Our holy life comes down out of it. So in verse 5, we find the salvation. In the beginning of verse 5, we find the blessing. And in verse 4, we find the holy life. What's the point? The point that it flows down. God in grace saves. He blesses. And out of that comes a holy life. Out of that flows one who can stand because we now are standing in the righteousness of 
Christ himself. None of this is to minimize that we are to do good works. Uh, Saying that you're not saved by good works does not minimize good works. That doesn't mean I don't have to do anything. I'm saved. I I don't have to do anything. God saves me. I don't have to do anything. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible actually teaches that you are saved for good works, not by for. It's terribly important, the distinction. Martin Luther, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. It's followed by works. David ends this section in verse 6 and says, Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Those who are pursuing holiness are, are seeking God's face. Uh, the idea of seeking God's face is the idea of, of uh, having or seeking or uh, desiring an audience with the king. It means to follow God. To be a seeker is to be a Christian. Or maybe said better, to be a Christian is to be a seeker. It's to want him. It's to know him. Listen to these words in Psalm chapter 27. I love this passage. You can just flip over there. It's only a page away. Psalm 27. Look at verse, uh, we won't read the whole thing, but just look at verse 4. David writing again. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. Then I drop down uh, to verse, I think it's verse 8. Yeah. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Can you say that? Can you say that? Do you want for him that way? Can can you echo the words of the psalmist that that he he is what you seek after, what you long for, what you desire? This is not something that's manufactured, by the way. It's not drummed up by music. It's not drummed up by emotion. It comes from a heart that has been changed. It comes from inside. You don't manufacture that desire. That desire comes from this very spirit of God. And so the question would be then is if there is no desire, if there's no seeking, if you don't long for God, there's questions about whether or not you know God. David recognized something about God that he wanted, not what he could get from him, but who he was. David even says that those who seek God's face are like Jacob, the God of Jacob. He uses Jacob here. That's an interesting choice, isn't it? He could have used the God of Abraham. He could have used the God of Isaac. He could have said uh, anything else. Why did he say Jacob? Well, we know some things about Jacob, don't we? And for some of us, we love that he just said that, the God of Jacob. Because we say, man, I can, I can be part of that team, right? I, I can identify with that team. If he's the God of Jacob, then he, he can be the God of Mark. 
right? He can be the God of a failure. In Genesis chapter 32, we read a story about Jacob. And Jacob is sleeping at night. Remember this story? And an angel comes, angel of the Lord, who we believe is Jesus. And he wrestles with Jacob. And Jacob strives with the angel all night. And he wants a blessing from, from the angel. Right? And he finally does get a blessing. But the blessing comes and he is changed by it. It, it marks a notable change in the life of Jacob, chapter 32. That he is marked by that event. Literally, he is struck with a, uh, his, his hip is out of joint. and He, he limps. It's a limp because of what he encountered, because of what he, he did. He was asked, he asked for a blessing and God gave it. He was a different man because he sought after God. He was a better man because he sought after God. But he sought for God. He wanted it. He desired it. He desired the blessing that God could give. Do you desire God that way? Do you seek for him? Do you want for him? Do the words of Psalm chapter 42, verses 1 and 2 identify with you at all? Listen to these words. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Do you want for him like that? Do you desire him at all? <laughs> Do you want to be in his presence that we read about in chapter 27? Do you want to be near him? Do you want his blessing Jacob wanted? Do you have any desire for that? There may be a reason why there are churches that are, are so apathetic towards the things of God. Because there is no heart. He ends that section with that term selah which means to pause and think about that turn that over a little bit then we come to the final section in verses 7 through 10 and we find out that that God is coming Psalm chapter 24 could be called an antiphonal psalm and what that that's a fancy word I learned this week so that that means this it means that there's an alternating between two to either groups or people, right? We see it in verse three. There's a question. You can look at it in your Bible. In verse three, there's a question and then there's a response. Who shall ascend? Verse four, he who has a clean hands. But in verses seven through 10, we, we see it again. So we see the people lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And the leader says, who's the king of glory? People, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in, in battle. And then the second uh, refrain, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. As we said, this, this psalm was marking the, the entrance of the Ark of the Covenant into the city. Uh, and here, this is this, this description of God coming into the city. The, the city gates uh, would have been what could be the, the city hall of 
ancient Jerusalem. That's where stuff went down. That's where business was taking place. That's where people talked. That's where decisions were made. And so it's here that there's this calling out for the Lord to be welcomed into the city, for the, for the doors to be lifted up, which would be figuratively speaking, because they wouldn't have been lifted up. They would have been uh, uh, opened this way. But Martin Luther's words is, the portals be opened wide. Right? Nevertheless, the point is, is let him in. Welcome him in. And as the Ark of the Covenant entered the city, this psalm would have been sung. And some think that even on Palm Sunday, as Jesus was led into the city, that this psalm could have been sung in the temple by the temple priests. With no application to Jesus, obviously. But here comes the king into the city, and they're not even identifying it. They might even be singing something like this. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors. Let the king of glory come in. Who's the king of glory? The Lord, mighty in battle, right? And here he comes, and they don't even see it. They don't even see it. And whereas they obviously did let him into the city, they didn't let him into their life. Right? They didn't let him into their heart. They didn't actually believe him. Uh, one, one commentator observes that in, in the Gospels, uh, we, we find that. We find those people who would let them into their house, but not into their heart. Or they might let them into, might let Jesus into their heart, but not into their house. Uh, but there are others who let them into both. Let him into both. House and heart. And that's what Jesus is really after, isn't it? He's after our life. He's after our heart. He wants to come into us. And so the great question is, is have you let Jesus in? It's an age-old question, isn't it? That Jesus, we're, we're asking, we're knocking, we're giving the opportunity for you to respond to this king who is coming. Would you believe him? Is he Lord? Is he king? Is he your savior? No, he is Lord. He is king and he is savior. The question is, is he yours? You don't make him anything. He is what he is, but is he yours? The scriptures call us to seek him while he may be found, Psalm 32. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Today is the day of salvation. If you don't know Jesus today, if you don't know this king as your king, the invitation is to come to him. And here he is. Who's this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. That's who the king is. Well, in verses 8 and 10, we see a repetition, right? We just read it. And you might wonder, why the repetition? Some might think it's just emphasis. Sometimes the Bible repeats itself for, for the sake of emphasis. That, that might be true. But there might be something else here, too. Now look at your Bible in verse 8. And it says in verse 8, who is the king of glory? And this is the response, the first response. The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. As Christ rose from the dead, he then ascended to heaven, victorious in battle, over sin, Satan, death, and hell. And there he was welcomed into the heavenly city. Jesus was welcomed home into the, the uh, Zion, right? Heavenly city of Zion, right? So in that way, we see the king coming to heaven. He is the, the Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. He won the victory through his death, burial, and resurrection, and now ascended back to the Father. But the second time, we see this. Who is the King of glory? The King of glory is the Lord of hosts. Now, the Lord of hosts is not an unusual term. It's actually used some 300 times in the Old Testament. 
Uh, we could say, instead of Lord of hosts, the, the commander-in-chief, if you will. But as Christ will one day come again, followed by the armies of heaven, which we find in Revelation, in Jude, he comes to deliver Jerusalem from their enemies, Zechariah 12 through 14, ultimately establishing his kingdom, he will be received as the king of glory. He will be received as the king of all the earth, Zechariah 14.9. He will be received as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Revelation chapter 19.16. So as uh, he comes to earth again, and he is coming again, uh, it will not be, a, a as one, uh, one writer calls it, a mysterious silence like the first coming, Right? When Jesus was born that Christmas, it was quiet, right? No, no, no muss, no fuss, no, no nothing, right? No, 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 that's not how it's going to go down this time. Instead, he will come with the voice of an archangel and the trump of God. It's going to be a very, very different experience when Jesus comes again. And he is coming, and he's coming to gather for himself his sheep. As he laid down his life for his sheep, as he cares for his sheep until his coming, then he comes and he gathers his sheep to himself and he judges those who have rejected him in unbelief. You see, the entrance into the city, the ark entering into the city, the point of the psalm being written, the initial point of the psalm being written, was a shadow. It's a shadow of the entrance of Christ into the heavenly city and one day his entrance back to earth to set up his literal kingdom on earth. The king is coming. If that doesn't delight your heart, I got nothing for you today. I got nothing. Nothing. There's nothing better you're going to hear today than the king is coming to gather together his sheep. Life isn't easy, is it? And we're not just hanging on till the end. That's not what this is. This isn't just hang on till Jesus gets back. But it is to say this. Jesus will gather you back up. So if you're wounded, if you're hurting, if you're sad, if you're suffering, if you think life hasn't been fair to you, know this, that God is coming and he's going to make all the wrongs right. He's a God of justice and the King of glory is coming, the Lord of hosts, with the armies of heaven will come with him to set up his kingdom in which we will live forever. This trilogy of Jesus tracks this trajectory of Jesus' ministry from crucifixion to care to ultimately his coming. He is the king of glory. First Peter chapter 5 verse 4 tells us that Jesus is the chief shepherd. And this chief shepherd in chapter 5 of First Peter is giving out the crown of glory to elders or pastors who have served faithfully. But the point is, is this, is that that's the one, the chief shepherd, Jesus himself, who has the authority to give out those crowns, those, those crowns of, of eternal riches, those crowns of, of victory. Why? Because he is crowned with glory and honor, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. So the one who's crowned with glory and honor will be the one who gives out the crown of glory. And what a day that will be. So we say, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Let me read this. We'll close with this. C.H. Spurgeon says this. It's possible that you are saying in response to all this, I shall never enter into the heaven of God. 
for I have neither clean hands nor a pure heart. He says, look then to Christ, who has already climbed the holy hill. He has entered as the forerunner for those who trust him, follow in his footsteps and repose upon his merit. He rides triumphantly into heaven. You shall ride there too if you trust him. The question, but how can I get the character described, says you? The Spirit of God will give you that. He will create in you a new heart and a right spirit. Faith in Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit. It has all virtues wrapped up in it. Faith stands by the fountain filled with blood. Faith stands by the fountain filled with blood. And as she washes therein, clean hands and a pure heart, a holy soul and a truthful tongue are given to her. How can you have this life? How can you stand before God? Because Jesus has done it already. And in him, we now have the righteousness of Christ. Thanks be to God. Father, so we say, lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, and let the King of glory come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Father, our hope today, our confidence today is in Jesus. It must be. It cannot be in ourselves. We recognize that the earth is yours. We recognize that we are not holy, so we could never stand. And yet, Christ is. Therefore, we can in him. And so with joy, with excitement, we can say, come, Lord Jesus, come. May the King of glory come, that we may see him, the one our soul longs for. May it be in Jesus' name. Amen.